Praise the Lord. Well, for those, how many of you have not uh, made any of the services before this? This is the first one you've been to. Could I see your hands? Praise God. Still got quite a few. Uh, I've been teaching this week on an expanded teaching of uh, grace and faith. I had a book, I have a book on that and a one tape teaching, but I've just expanded on it uh, during these five sessions. I taught about how that we're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8. And it's not grace alone that saves or faith. I define what grace was, what faith is. Grace is God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. It's done for us, independent of us, prior to us, so it has nothing to do with us. Some people have taken that truth about that we don't deserve things and that it's all God's ability and they have perverted that, taken it to an extreme. In the very first night I talked against a wrong application of the sovereignty of God to where you just people think that God controls everything and we have nothing to do with everything. It's whatever God wills comes to pass. That is absolutely wrong. It's a faith killer and it will make you vulnerable to the devil. Then on the other hand... Some people teach about faith that in a sense that we can make God do things and they emphasize what we have to do and it becomes a legalistic thing to where they think that faith moves God. Faith doesn't move God. God moves by grace. Faith only reaches out and appropriates what God has already provided for us by grace. And so I've combined those two. We've talked about that. we talked about how that we already have everything from Ephesians chapter 1, the prayer that Paul prayed and said that he prayed that we'd get a revelation of the power we already have, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not out there available to us if we will just pray and seek Him properly, but it's already in us. It's already in us. This morning I talked from Hebrews chapter 4 about the Sabbath rest being a picture of a New Testament relationship to where God's already provided everything like in creation. He didn't wait until man got hungry to create him food. He created food before man ever had the need. He provided air before there was ever people to breathe it. He's provided everything. The atmosphere was just perfect. Well, likewise, in the new creation, God has already healed us before you ever get sick. By his stripes you were healed. He's already provided everything. And what we've got to do is learn, first of all, what has been provided by grace and then learn how to just rest in that, trust in that, and appropriate. So that's what we've been talking about, and I tell you, there's a lot more to say. This is kind of a foundational truth that God has given me, and from this has sprung a lot of things that I teach. And I'm really... uh, kind of at a loss of where to go tonight because I could make a million points out of this and a lot of applications we could teach on healing and other things. But as I've thought about it, here's what I want to share with you tonight. Probably the number one benefit that these truths that I've shared has, the number one way that it's affected me is just in my personal relationship with God, my understanding how much God loves me. I really believe that everything else in the Christian life comes out of relationship. And I see so many people that are trying to work some kind of a formula. They're looking for some kind of a key. Give me two or three steps, something that I do, kind of like God is a slot machine. Give me something to stick in there and pull a handle so that I can make God come out. And you know, it doesn't work that way. 
The number one thing that I've learned from all of this is about how that God's love for me is unconditional. It's not based on anything I do. God's love towards me is consistent. It never fluctuates based on what I do. When I'm better, God doesn't love me more. When I'm bad, God doesn't love me less. I have come to recognize that God's grace and therefore God's love, God's favor, God's acceptance of me is unconditional. It has nothing to do with who I am. It has everything to do with who He is. It's not because I'm lovely. It's because He is love. And this is one of the greatest applications of this whole truth. Let's turn over to 1 John chapter 4. and Let me just take a few scriptures from here. In 1 John chapter 4, and it's hard to pick, but if I don't pick certain scriptures, I'll wind up preaching on these verses all night long because there's a lot of good things to say. So I'm just going to go through and pick out a few verses. In verse 9, it says, In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. How do we know that God loves us? It's not based on a feeling. It's not based on whether you have some kind of an emotional thing. And I can spend all night talking about this because our, you know, there's a scripture in Ephesians chapter 4 that says that they, being beyond feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness. Now, the, you know, lasciviousness isn't a word that we use often, and so a lot of people just skip over that and don't really think about what it means. But what this is saying, lasciviousness is uncontrolled, unrestrained, unfettered lust and desire is what the word lasciviousness means. And so it's saying that going beyond a natural, normal use of feelings there is coming a generation of people that have given themselves into lasciviousness, uncontrolled, unrestrained emotions, feelings, desires. If you haven't realized this yet, we live in that generation. We are a group of people that have gone far, far, far beyond what God ever intended emotions to be. And people today have put emotions on a level that is absolutely ungodly. I couldn't tell you the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that I've talked to who've told me that they're depressed and that they've got this and they've got that. And I'll say, so what's the problem? What is it that's depressed you? Well, nothing. I can't think of it. I just feel this. <laughs> they don't even have a reason for it. Well, I feel this. We've enshrined feelings to where if I don't feel something, well, then it must not be true. Feelings are fickle. Now, we've got them and God gave them to us and in the right mix, they're okay. But when you get to a place that you let feelings dominate you, you're acting like a child. That's the way kids do. Well, I don't feel like doing it. And you have to tell your kids, I don't care if you feel like doing it or not. I told you to do it. Get up and do it. You know, part of being an adult is you don't always feel like going to work. But part of being an adult is you get up and you do what you need to do. It's only a spoiled, spoiled generation, affluent generation like what we live in that has the luxury of doing what we feel like. 
One or two generations ago, people were struggling to survive and it didn't matter how they... They didn't have time to sit around and, and discern how they felt. They were too busy scratching out a living and doing what it took to make ends meet. But now we sit around and I don't feel like you love me anymore. I don't feel this. You know, you can't praise God with your thumb in your mouth. Just pull your thumb out of your mouth and grow up and quit letting feelings dominate you. I've had people come to me by the thousand, but I don't feel God loves me. And I say, well, then your feelings are wrong. Oh, but I've got to feel it. Why do you have to feel it? Oh, it's not real if I don't feel it. That's stupid. Was that too blunt? Did anybody miss what I was... This is what's destroying a lot of marriages today. We've got a lot of, you know, I'm not saying this on my own. The scripture says silly women laden with lust. We've got a lot of people today that have so empowered you that they've got to make you feel good and they've got to honor you and do all of these things. Well, yes, it'd be wonderful if every husband treated their wife exactly the way they were supposed to. But guess what? You're married to people who are fallen human beings. They don't always do it right. And if somebody doesn't say something right to you all of the time, just pull your thumb out of your mouth and go on and believe God. Did you know 50 years ago, 100 years ago, I can guarantee you this, that you would have never, never, never have found a marriage seminar that taught everybody on communications and how to do this and how to do these little things. and It's silly stuff. Now, am I saying that communication isn't important? No, but I'm saying, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that it's, it's not about all these little things. If you would just grow up and give your wife and your husband a little bit of slack sometime, and just because they don't treat you perfectly again... Do what's right, not what you feel like. But there's people, well, I don't feel like you love me. You know that they do, but you don't feel it. They didn't tell you enough. Some of you are what I used to call with, with my horses hard keepers. There are some horses that you could feed them and feed them and feed them until they die of colic because they've eaten so much and they'd still look poor. And then there's other horses that you can nearly starve them and they'll look full. And what you call them is hard keepers and easy keepers. We have become hard keepers today because we have elevated feelings to a place where I've got to feel all of these things and all of this. And I, I'm just telling you that that is immature. It's childish. There is a place for emotions, but it's not the place that it occupies with most people. We have gone beyond feelings into lasciviousness to where we have to feel all of these things. And there are people that are sitting there, they know what the truth is, and it doesn't matter, it's whatever they feel. I'm telling you, that is carnal to the max. That is demonic. It is a perversion of the way that God made us to be. I had a woman go through our Bible college, and she made a tape, and she gave it to me to listen to, and most of it was really good. But one of the examples that she gave in there, she was talking about a friend of theirs who their daughter was, uh, I forgot the exact problem, but anyway, she was counseling her and she was trying to deal with her and it all came back. The daughter said, but my parents, 
they didn't treat me right and they didn't honor me and they didn't do this and they didn't do these things. And this woman said on the tape, she says, I knew the parents. These were good parents. They weren't perfect. They didn't do everything right. But they, it wasn't true what the daughter was saying about them. Those parents loved that daughter and they may have you know, not done everything perfectly, but they really honored her and they did these things. And she says, I knew that she was wrong, but I didn't tell her anything because it didn't matter whether she was right or wrong. To her, it was real. Boy, when she said that, I took the tape and threw it out the window. I hate that. I hate that with a passion. And yet there are probably many of you in here who say, well, you know, that's true. To them, it's real. No, they're deceived. It's the truth that's going to set you free. And you know what the proper thing to have done would have been to stop her right in the middle and say, you know what, your perception is wrong. And until you start wising up and realizing that not everybody's going to stroke you and treat you perfectly the rest of your life, and until you quit blaming other people for the offense that you've taken, and until you start shouldering your own responsibility, you're never going to grow and mature. There are some of you that feel things so passionately. It doesn't matter to you whether it's truth or not. It's true to you. Well, I'm telling you, it's only the truth, the real truth. Not the truth that you feel that's going to set you free, but it's the real truth that's going to set you free. And you're going to have to pull your thumb out of your mouth and grow up and start realizing some things. Anyway, I got off on all of that. I really got a little bit sidetracked. But I got off on all of that by talking about God's love for us. I have people come to me all of the time and say, Would you please pray for me? I just don't feel the love of God. And I'll begin to tell them, just like this verse, In this was manifested. Don't you know that God loves you? Jesus came and died for me. Oh, I know that Jesus died for me. And oh yes, I know that God loves me. But I don't feel it. And when I hear that, I tell you the spirit of slap just wants to come all over me. Like, man. You know that God loves you, but you don't feel it. You don't have a goosebump. You don't have a feeling overwhelming you at the moment. And so because I forget the truth, forget reality, forget fact, I just don't feel it. Would you please pray that I have a feeling? That's lasciviousness. That is inordinate. That's perverse. It's demonic. You don't have to always feel something. It says God manifested His love toward us in that He sent His Son to die for us. If you know that, if you know that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him would not perish but have everlasting life, if you know that, you've got zero, zero excuse for ever being depressed, discouraged, defeated, feeling lonely, You might have reasons, but you've got zero excuse. You've got the knowledge that it takes to set you free. If you would just meditate on the fact that, Father, you love me. And notice, it says like over in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Man, i got so many verses I want to refer to, but anyway, we'll just go with the flow here and see how we get there. But Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, In this was manifested the love of God. Or excuse me, that's a verse I just read. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This love that God gave us through Jesus, it didn't come in response 
to your goodness and to the fact that you had been praying and fasting and studying the Word and you had humbled yourself and you had now started being a good person or something like that. If you would just stop and think about Romans 5, 8, God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. You know, there's good sinners and bad sinners in here. But we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And compared to other people, you might look good, but compared to God, we are all an offense against God. We have all fallen so far short of where God wanted us to be that I guarantee you there's not a person in here that God looked down and saw you and thought, oh, they are so close. They are so good that I've got to help them and give them the little bit of boost. You know, from God's perspective, from perfection, from what He intended us to be, there's not a one of us in here that was worth God wasting His breath on, much less sending His Son to die for us. There isn't a one of us in here that deserves the love of God. You know, I could preach on that all night long, but there, before you really understand how much God loves you, you've got to quit loving yourself. You've got to quit thinking that somehow or another you are such a feather in God's cap that He did this because He just couldn't live without you. You've got to come to the end of yourself and quit trusting in yourself and recognize where you are. You know, the, the experience that turned my life around, I was already born again when I was 8 years old, but when I was 18, I had become a religious Pharisee and I was living such a holy life. I was holier than the pastor of the church. I was leading more people to the Lord per week than the pastor of the church. I'd, I've never in all of my life said a word of profanity. I'm 58 years old, nearly 59. I've never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. Never tasted coffee. Some of you are thinking, coffee? I'm not saying that coffee and booze are the same. You've got a scripture to stand on for drinking coffee. Mark chapter 16, verse 18 says, You can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you. Amen. I'm just saying I was living a holy life, but I had fallen into this deception of trusting in my own goodness. And you know what? As long as I thought that God owed it to me, I never had a great revelation of how much God loved me. But on March the 23rd, 1968, when I was 18 years old, God just pulled back a curtain and it was a supernatural revelation. It was just imparted unto me supernaturally. There's no rhyme or reason that I knew this, but God just sh shined a light on me and I saw myself as a religious hypocrite. I was born again, but I was a scribe and Pharisee, a religious hypocrite. And I can't, you know, there are some of you that have gone out and committed adultery and lied and stole and you've done all kinds of things that I never did. But I doubt very seriously that there is a person in this room that has ever seen themselves as a more of a sinner than I have seen myself. And that's an opinion. That's subjective. You can argue that. But I can guarantee you... Uh, I would rank right there with uh, at the top of any person in here. I saw myself from God's perspective. I saw how vile I was, my hypocrisy, my religious stuff. And I came to the end of myself. And I turned myself inside out. And then 
after all that. I expected God to kill me. I, told that God, I was told that God's the one that killed my dad when I was 12 years old. I thought that God judged him. I, when I saw how bad I was, I thought that's the first time God had seen it. And I fully expected God to kill me on the spot. That's not an exaggeration. I never expected to live through the night. But I just confessed everything, not only my actions, but my thoughts, my emotions, my attitudes. I turned myself inside out, uh, hoping that before God killed me, I'd repent enough that He would at least take me into heaven. And to my surprise, when I humbled myself and quit putting any faith or uh, confidence in myself, a tangible love of God flowed into my life that I guarantee you just revolutionized me. For four and a half months, I was gone someplace. I was caught up in the presence of God. God just loved me. And the, and the major thing about it was I never would have understood the depth of God's love if I was thinking that some, there was something I did that deserved it. If you are still maintaining your own righteousness, then you'll never truly understand God's love. You've got to come to the end of yourself. And that's the purpose that God gave the law, was to expose how ungodly we were, to bring us to the end of ourself. The law is condemning. The law is harsh. And the purpose of it was to bring you to the end of yourself because only when you come to the end of yourself do you find the beginning of God. Amen. And see, if you haven't understood the things that I'm talking about, that God, by grace, He commended His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. He didn't see something in you that just was so wonderful. He had to have you. He saw us and because of His great love. Matter of fact, it says that in Ephesians chapter 2 and in one of the translations, I think it's the Amplified Bible, it says... Because of His love and in order to satisfy His intense love, He sent His Son and died for us. The Lord was motivated and loved us, not because we are lovely, but because God is so much love. And see, this is what this grace and faith has taught me, is that God's love for me is not tied to any worth or any value in my life. And there's probably some people in this auditorium listening to me who think, well, boy, this is depressing me. It's discouraging me. You're making me think I'm... What is this doing to my self-worth? Well, you know what? I don't agree with all of the stuff on self-worth. Yourself is what caused Jesus to come to this earth and die because you were so sorry. And you know what? Your self may be better than myself, but your self still has caused a lot of heartache, a lot of pain in your life and in other people's lives. And I am not into self-esteem. I'm into Christ-esteem. I esteem what Jesus has done. I am thrilled with who I am in Christ, what God has done in me. But you know what? There is a part of me that was corrupt. There's a part that I, I deny it, I reject it, I try and walk in the Spirit, but there's a part of me that's still not born again. My spirit's born again, but I've still got flesh. And you come up, there's a part of me that I don't esteem. And you know, there's times that you ought to absolutely feel rotten. There's times that when you act like the devil, you act stupid, you ought to feel stupid. You ought to feel rotten. God gave us emotions. 
It's, it's similar to feeling in your hand. You know, if you weren't paying attention, you could lean up against the stove or something. And if you weren't watching, you could uh, do irreparable damage to yourself. But God gave you this feeling of pain. None of us like it, but if you put your hand on a hot stove before you even have time to think about it and look at it and see what the temperature on the stove is, your hand can tell you you've got pain and instantly you withdraw it and it saves you from having damage. God gave you the ability to be depressed and to be hurt and to be discouraged, not so that you could live there, but when you begin to start being depressed, you know what that ought to tell you? The Bible says in Isaiah 26, 3, the Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusts in him. If you're depressed, you know what that ought to tell you? Well, it tells me that nobody loves me and that I've been mistreated and that I had a dysfunctional home and that somebody else is responsible. No. You know what depression tells you? You aren't keeping your mind stayed on God. You're looking at circumstances. You've let your attention move off of Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. And the reason you're sinking is because you quit looking at Jesus and you started looking at the wind and the waves around you and it caused you to fear. There's a purpose for all those things. I sometimes have discouragement come against me and I don't ignore it, but what I do is I recognize, God, if I'm discouraged, there's a reason for discouragement. And it's because I haven't been meditated on you. I haven't been focused on you the way that I should. And so I get back and start focusing on the Lord and just get my feelings back. But you know what? Even when I'm not feeling right, I don't sit here and start disbelieving that God loves me because I don't feel it. I have written this down. It's an absolute. It's a cardinal law. I never deviate from it. That God commended His love towards me in that while I was yet a sinner... Christ died for me. That means it had nothing to do with my goodness. It had nothing to do with anything in me. It was all about God. And over in Romans chapter 5, I don't know if you're there, but in verse 9, after it says in verse 8, God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9 says, Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. If you accepted that God loved you, and gave His love to you by grace, not based on performance. If He loved you while you were yet a sinner so much that He died for you, then much more now that we're born again. Do you know the average Christian, the average church teaches much less now. They would never say it that way, but that's what they teach. They will sit there and say, come to the Lord just as you are. If you're a sinner, that means you're qualified. Jesus died for sinners. You know, if a person came into this church service, you could have a person drunk. You could have a person high on dope. You could have a person reeking with alcohol, whatever the situation is. And you know what the typical Christian would do to a lost man? They'd walk up and say, God loves you. God's got a better life. Jesus died for your sins. Wouldn't you like to accept Jesus? Wouldn't you like to be forgiveness? The average Christian will extend grace towards a lost man. But let that drunk pray with you and receive salvation and come back tomorrow drunk. And if he claims to be a Christian, the average Christian who would minister grace to him, as long as he'd just admit that he's lost... 
But let him say that he's saved and come back and the average Christian is start saying, boy, God's mad at you. God's not going to bless you. God won't answer your prayers. The wrath of God is coming on you. You better repent or else, turn or burn. And you'd start preaching wrath to him. You know why a lot of people go through what's called a honeymoon period when they get born again? It's because when they get born again, they're told that regardless of what you've done, God loves you by grace. It's unconditional. It doesn't matter what you've done. You come and accept Jesus and you get all of your sins forgiven. And so you say, man, that's awesome news. So you believe, you receive salvation and you just are in love with God. The colors are brighter the sounds are better, the smells are better, everything's wonderful because you believe that God loves you. And then you go to church. And you, you see somebody testify that they got healed of something. You say, well, boy, I have something. I'd like to be healed. And so they pray and you don't instantly see a manifestation. And you say, what's wrong? And they say, sin. And you say, I, th- I thought God had forgiven me. Oh, yeah, He had back then. But you know what? You've sinned since then. You are, you're going to have to start studying more. You're going to have to read the Bible an hour a day. You're going to have to pray in tongues. You've got to go to church. Have you been paying your tithes? God won't bless you unless you pay your... And, they, and all of a sudden, without the person realizing it, this feeling that they had of, I'm, God loves me and it's based on grace. All of a sudden they realize, "Uh uh-oh, if I'm going to start receiving from God, I've got to start being holy and doing all of these things or God won't bless me. And they lose putting faith in grace and now they're back to trying to earn and merit God's favor. But this verse says, God loved you while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you, and much more now. Some of you came to the Lord and you had been living in adultery. You confessed Jesus as your Lord and instantly you were in relationship with God. Adultery couldn't stop you from God. Some of you had lied and stolen. Some of you were dope addicts, alcoholics. You did all kinds of things and yet you come and confess Jesus as your Lord and instantly you believe that you're in relationship with God. But now that you're born again, you feel guilty because you know you ought to be studying the Word more and you, you ought, you've made a promise to have a devotion and you haven't kept it. You got mad at your wife on the way to church. You had an argument. You haven't been home. You didn't go to your kid's baseball game. And you feel guilty. And now God's liable to let you die of cancer because you haven't studied the Word or prayed 30 minutes. Now, He accepted you when you were an adulterer and when you were a murderer and a thief and everything else. But now, if you don't read your daily Bible readings, you're liable to die of cancer because you don't deserve it. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. If you receive the Lord by grace, you, you heard about the grace of God. God commended His love towards you and that while you were yet a sinner, He died for you. 2,000 years ago, Jesus bore the sins of the world before you were ever born. And so you heard of the grace of God and your faith just reached out and appropriated it. But now that you become religious, you have to start earning things. You better be fasting and praying and studying the Word and doing these things. And you know what? Your faith is no longer in an unconditional love of God that made everything available to you free. It's based on how holy you're living. Your faith is in you and not in grace. 
Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'm getting this across to you. Some of you are sitting there and just deflecting what I'm saying and saying, oh, that's not me. But I can guarantee you that this is where the majority of people live, is they are in a works mentality and this is why they aren't experiencing a greater relationship with God and stuff is because they feel that they have to earn it and you are constantly trying to perform instead of just receiving the love of God by grace. Just putting faith in the unmerited, unearned, deserved favor of God. God loves you not anything to do with how good you are. You know, I've told you about my son being raised from the dead. I've seen three people raised from the dead. My son was dead for five hours, was raised from the dead with no brain damage, no more than he had before. <laughs> I've told you about blind eyes being open. We've had testimonies from Melinda tonight about all of these miracles. You know, most of you, this is a Saturday night. You aren't in church. You're at a hotel listening to a hick from Texas. You are a stark, raving, mad fanatic. Or either a fanatic drug you here. You, this isn't the nod to God crowd. You know, you believe in miracles. You believe in these things. If I tell you about miracles, most of you would, Amen, brother, I believe this. If somebody fell dead right here and I said, All right, how many of you believe that God can raise this person from the dead? I guarantee you most of you would be right there with me. And if I said, I'm going to pray for them and we're going to see this person raised from the dead, there'd be many of you get up out of your seats and come up here. You'd want to see it. You'd be excited. But you know where I could lose the majority of you is I say, All right. If you believe it, you come up here and pray for them. And all of a sudden, those of you that had all of this excitement when it was me, you had all of this anticipation when it was me, your faith would turn into unbelief, your anticipation would turn into dread, you'd admit, uh, now let, think about what happened. It's not you doubting that God can do it. Like I said, you aren't the nod to God crowd. You believe in the supernatural power of God or you wouldn't be spending a Saturday night out here listening to me. You believe God can do anything. You believe in the supernatural power of God. That's not the problem. The problem is you don't doubt God's ability. You're doubting God's willingness to use His ability in your behalf because you don't feel worthy. You haven't yet understood that it's totally the grace of God. You think that you have to do something to merit it, to earn it. That's why you have more faith in my prayers than you have in your prayers. If you knew me as well as you know you, you wouldn't have any more faith in my prayers than you got in your prayers. It's true. You think that a preacher's got it all worked out, and man, we live holy all the time. Talk to my wife. She doesn't love me by justice. She loves me in spite of who I am, not because of who I am. But see, that's the deal. You, it, you know you so well. You bear a sin consciousness and an unworthiness. And because we don't fully understand that it's all the grace of God. God hasn't ever had anybody qualified working for Him yet. I'm not qualified to do this. God doesn't use me because I deserve it. I'm not holy enough. I have to stand here and believe in the goodness and in the grace of God. 
And see, this is, the, this is the number one thing that I've gotten out of this revelation. I've applied it to my relationship with God. And I know that God's love for me, I've experienced this. Right when I confessed my sins and I realized how ungodly I was is the first and the greatest revelation that I ever had of God's love. It wasn't based on any worth of my own. It wasn't any goodness of my own. It had nothing to do with me. God loves you completely independent of you. You don't have to earn and deserve it. It's the grace of God. God by grace. He loved you before you were born again. And now that you are born again, much more, much more, much more He loves you now. If you are the sorriest saint in this room, if you are the lousiest Christian in this auditorium, God loves you infinitely more than He ever loved you before you got born again. God's love for you is unconditional. It's unending. It's unchanging. Since you didn't do anything to cause God to love you, that means you can't do anything to cause God not to love you because His love has never been tied to anything you've done. God loves you. If you could get a revelation of that, I guarantee you, it would solve all of your problems. I actually believe that. Somebody says, oh, but you don't understand. I'm dying. That wouldn't solve that problem. Yeah, well, the Bible says in Galatians 5, 6, faith works by love. If you understood how much God loved you, your faith would go through the roof. Man, you would just, you'd be overwhelmed. If God loved you enough to die and bear your sins and suffer the shame and all of the things that He did, It says this in Romans chapter 8. He that commended his love toward us and all these things, if he spared not his own son, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Being healed is insignificant to being forgiven and loved by God. And you may not have ever phrased it this way, but you know what? If you're struggling to believe that God is going to heal you and that you're going to see healing, you're really struggling with the love of God. I've used this same logic many times. I remember a man who was dying. I was trying to convince him it was God's will for him to be well. And he just was so thankful for what God had already done. He didn't feel like he deserved to be healed of cancer. He was laying on his deathbed. And he was saying, I'm just not sure that God would do this for me. He's already done enough. And basically, I just turned and looked at his wife. I said, do you think that your wife wants to see you suffering like this, seeing you in pain, seeing you doing... And he said, oh no, this is not pleasing. He says, if she could, she would do anything for me. If she could, she would take my place. And I said, and you think God loves you less than your wife? Boy, it just stopped him. I remember a man one time that brought his daughter in a wheelchair and she was 12 years old and she was a quadriplegic. Her mind it was fried. She couldn't talk, communicate. She was a vegetable. And they, they had diapers on her. She was 12 years old. She had never responded. She was just breathing, but she wasn't alive. And this man got offended because I said it was God's will for every person to be healed. And he got up and left during the service. And the people who brought him to the meeting said, why don't you wait until after the service is over and ask Andrew what he's talking about. Maybe he could explain it. So this guy stayed and talked. And his daughter was sitting in a wheelchair. I was standing in front of the wheelchair. He was behind it. 
And he was telling me that God made her this way. This was God's will. That it, God's getting glory out of this. And he was using scriptures that I felt like he was misusing the scriptures. I was using scriptures to say every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above. That God's not the author of these things. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. And he thought I was misusing my scriptures. I thought he was misusing his. And we were at a standstill. This guy was already mad at me. And so I thought, I've got nothing to lose. And so I just looked at this guy and I said, what kind of father are you in the first place? I said, you don't even love your daughter. I said, you don't care if she's ever normal. You don't care if she ever walks. You don't care if she ever interacts with anybody. If she ever gets married, you don't care. You don't love your daughter. Boy, this guy was hot. (laughs) He was mad. And he says, he was yelling at me and he says, I'd do anything. If there was an operation, I'd give any amount of money. He says, if I could, I'd be like her so that she could be well. And then I turned to him and I said, and you think God loves your daughter more, less than you do. Now see, we could have argued scriptures and doctrine forever, but when I put it down to just love, he knew that there is nothing that would have kept him from ministering to his daughter and healing her if he could. And here he was thinking that God, who is all-powerful and has all power and might, didn't care about his daughter as much as he did. When you bring it down to relationship and talk about love, he just had to say, I see your point. He says, if God is any kind of a God at all, any kind of a good God, it must be his will for my daughter to be well. See, that would solve your theological problems. That would get rid of this thinking that God is the one who's causing Hurricane Katrina and judging people and doing all of these kind of things. Man, that's not God. And religion has been misrepresenting God. They will preach the gospel to a degree that when you first get born again, we'll sing the song, Just As I Am, without one plea, and we'll preach grace. That's why it's so easy to get born again, because grace is presented and faith is just something you do to receive what God has already done. If salvation would be presented differently, if people would say, now Jesus might forgive your sins... Jesus might come to this earth and die for you if you will pray hard enough and if you will repent hard enough and if you will promise to never do anything wrong again and if you will live holy, then God might do it. You would have never gotten saved because you would have thought, oh, it'll never work for me. But see, the reason it was easy to get saved is because it was presented as it's already done. It's the good news. It's not the good prophecy. It's the good news. It's already happened. It's already taken place. When they report the news, well, I can't say this completely because they, they fabricate things now and make up stuff. But the news is supposed to be telling you what has already happened. The good news, the reason it's easy to get born again is because you're told that Jesus already died for the sins of the world. He's already commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. And it's news. And so you say, well, man, if it's already happened, I'll receive it. It's easy to reach out and receive something if it's already done. If there's no element of doubt in it, will God do it? And so that's the reason that you get born again relatively easy. But then it's like the Galatians. The Galatians were people that received the gospel and got born again. But then the Jews, the religious Jews came in and started saying, faith in Jesus isn't enough. You've also got to be circumcised. You've also got to keep the law. You've got to keep the feast. You've got to start doing this. 
And they started perverting the gospel. They started changing it. They said, oh yeah, you may get born again by grace, but God's not going to bless you. He's not going to answer your prayers. He won't move in your life if you don't start living holy. And it perverted the gospel. And how did Paul respond to it? If you've not studied the book of Galatians, you ought to study it. Man, it is his most vicious, vile attack on this unbelief of any book in the Bible. He said, you foolish Galatians. The word literally means stupid idiots is what the word means. He says, who has bewitched you? It's demonic. You're living in deception. And he says, if anybody preaches any other gospel than that which I've preached, let him be accursed. And I'm sure people thought, oh, that's too hard. He couldn't have meant that. So he says, again, I say, if anybody preaches any other gospel unto you than that which I preach, let him be accursed. He didn't want anybody to misunderstand what he was saying. And brothers and sisters, this is where the body of Christ is today. They're preaching salvation to a degree so that you get born again by grace. We sing just as I am without one plea. But then after you're born again, we start singing just as I'm supposed to be. And we start trying to live right and we hope, oh God, have I done enough? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. I've had people come up here by the thousands and they've said things like, why hasn't God healed me? I fast, I pray, I study the word, I pay my tithes, I've gone to church, I'm reading the word, I'm doing everything I know to do. Why hasn't God healed me? You just told me. You never pointed to what Jesus did for you. You pointed to what you have been doing and that reveals that your faith is in all of your things thinking that God responds to your faith. That is not grace and faith. Faith doesn't move God. God has provided everything for you independent of you and all your faith does is reach out and appropriate what Jesus has done. If you're pointing to your goodness then you aren't putting faith in God's grace. You're putting faith in your efforts. You're putting faith in your performance. And I know that there's people sitting right here listening to me who are saying, but you do have to do all of these right things. It is good for you to live a holy life, to study the Word, to pray, to do these things, but not to affect God. Again, God's love for you isn't based on what you do. He didn't save you because you were worth saving. He didn't save you because of some goodness in your life. It was His grace that commended His love towards you in that while you were yet a sinner. God, your holiness does not change God's heart towards you, nor will your lack of holiness change God's heart towards you. God loved you before you were holy, and now that you are semi-holy, He doesn't love you any less, nor will He love you any uh, more. But your holiness will change your heart towards God. You need to study the Word to change your heart, not because God is looking at it and going to reward you and answer your prayers because you've now been good enough. You need to go to church because it helps you. Going to church helps you to hear the Word of God and to hear people speak about it. A meeting like this, you aren't going to get the things that I'm saying off of uh, television, maybe a Christian television program, but even most Christian stations don't have a whole bunch of gospel on it. You aren't going to get the thing. You need to come to meetings where people are expounding the Word of God and speaking the truths and seeing the power of God and hear testimonies where people have been healed and tumors have dissolved and miracles have happened. People's legs have grown. It's good for you. It helps you, but it doesn't make God love you anymore. He's not keeping a 
a record of your attendance and when you get so many meetings, you can cash them in for one answered prayer? (laughs) Do you know, if you never go to church again, God would love you exactly the same. Some of you are thinking, whoopee! No more church for me. Well, it's true. God will love you exactly the same if you never go to church again. But you're stupid if you don't go to church. Is that too subtle? Anybody miss that? You're just stupid if you don't go to church. How dumb can you get and still breathe? Man, we're being bombarded with unbelief constantly and told all of this junk. You need some place where you can go hear the truth. You need to be around people who will love you and turn the other cheek when you do something wrong. You need to be around the fellowship of the believers. Man, you're stupid if you don't go to church. But my point is, God loves you, stupid, based on His grace, not based on your performance. Amen. I don't know about you, but this helps me. It helps me because, you know, the truth is I can sit here and try and have positive self-esteem and try and think that I'm never wrong and everybody else is the problem. It's never me. It's always somebody else. But just eventually I have to look in the mirror and see that, you know what, I do some dumb things and I make mistakes. And boy, it blesses me to find out that God's love is not conditional. You know, I was sharing with my partners that we've made this biggest expansion we've ever made in our ministry. We took this huge step of faith and went on the second largest television station in the nation that cost me nearly $70,000 a month. And I've been on it now for 18 months. I've lost nearly $600,000 more put into it than what's come out. And you know what? I'm having to take a step back. And some people just can't handle that. Oh, you made a mistake. Well, it wouldn't be the first one I've ever made. And so I just, I don't know if I could cope with it. You know, it's not a problem to me. Some people think that, you know, when God touches your life, you just go straight there and everything's perfect. That's not been my experience at all. It's like, it's more like this. I'm moving in the direction God wants me to do, but I'm not doing everything perfectly. You know, God could have picked somebody better than me. God could have picked people that had a lot better grasp of the language and a lot more charisma than I've got. My, my staff makes fun of me about how emotionless I am. They actually have a picture of me and it's data from the Star Trek with my face on him. I mean, you know what? I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but praise God... I'm seeing good things happen just because I know that God loves me in spite of me and not because of me. Amen. And there's very few people in this auditorium that are one of those perfect people that you just think that you've got the greatest of everything. Most of us realize that, you know, most of us really deal with feelings of unworthiness and God, why did you choose me? And God, I'm not qualified. If you follow people in the Bible, every person, every person that God called, they said, God, I can't do it. They struggled for a period of time. 
Matter of fact, the Lord even said over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, He says, You see your calling, brethren, how that God has not chosen many mighty, not many noble, not many of these people who have it all together, but God chose the base things of the world, and things that are despised, and things that are nothing to bring to naught things that are. You know, if you're a nothing, if you're a loser, you, you qualify. Amen? It's not that God's against people that have every, all of these great abilities and talents, but it's just that, you know, all of your abilities and talents compared to God's are nothing. And you have to come to the end of yourself and say, oh God, it's got to be you. And so God just, you know, He says, if you're nothing, if you are base, if you're despised, if you are nothing, apply within. You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to realize that it's not you. And see, understanding that grace, it's not based on any goodness of you. It's just based on God's love. God loves you in spite of who you are, not because of who you are. God's love, He loved you before you were born. He loved you before you sinned. He loved you even after you had sinned and become this sinner. He commended His love towards you. And now that you've accepted Him, He loves you much, 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 much more than He ever loved you before you even received it. Because now you have made Jesus your Lord. You are a part of Him. The grace, the blessing of God is in your life unconditionally. That's what I got out of that experience in 1968. God, I knew it because I had for the first time in my life seen that I was a zero with the rim knocked off. I had no confidence, no satisfaction with myself whatsoever. And at the, my worst state, my recognition of my worst state, God's love flowed into me. And I just knew that it had nothing to do with me. I knew that God loved me because He was love. And because of that, it's changed my life. I wished I could make everybody understand this. This is what these verses are saying. God manifested His love toward us in that He died for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And yet the church, it's actually the devil, through religion, has tied... God's love for you and acceptance of you and favor of you to your works and your performance and your goodness. And many of you believe God exists. That's not the problem. You know that God is able. You just doubt His willingness to move in your behalf because you feel condemned over your sins. You know, I wish I had time. I'm not gonna, I don't have time tonight, but let me just mention this. And I've got a lot of teaching. I've got a, a tape set out there entitled uh, The War is Over. That's going to be coming out in a book soon. Boy, you need to get that, and it will explain what I'm about to say. I've also got a tape set on uh, spirit, soul, and body. I've got a book on that, and I've got a teaching entitled Eternal Redemption. I'm just going to say a couple of things and summarize it because I don't have time. But see, most people think that you God offers you forgiveness of all of your sins up until the time you get born, and when you accept Jesus, your sins are forgiven. But then every sin you commit after that has to be dealt with, repented of, put back under the blood. And then there's two uh, applications of this. The ultra-Pentecostal type will say that if you have a sin in your life that isn't confessed, and if you were to die in a car wreck before you got that sin confessed, 
you would die and go to hell. Even though you might have been born again for 20 years, if you have an unconfessed sin in your life and die, you go to hell and you lose your salvation, even though you've walked with God for 40 years. A lesser interpretation, but the same principle is what evangelicals and most Christians believe, and that is that every sin in your life, God won't answer your prayer, God won't fellowship with you, and God won't use you if there's any sin in your life. That's the exact same thing, just to a lesser degree, lesser consequences, and both of those are wrong. If I had time, I could show you from Hebrews chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 12, that God forgave all of your sins, past, present, and even sins you haven't committed yet have already been forgiven. Your salvation, God's love for you, God's using you, God's answering your prayer is not dependent upon you getting every sin confessed. If it was, you know, the moment you got born again, I'd just kill you. I might go to hell, but that's the only way you'd ever get to heaven. That's the only way you'd ever walk in the joy of the Lord because... Sin is not only what you do that's wrong. The Bible says to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Sin is what you should be doing, that you're failing to do. Every man in here should love his wife the way that Christ loved the church. You might be doing better at it than you've ever done, but you aren't doing it perfectly. Every woman in here is supposed to reverence her husband the way that the church reverences Christ. You might be doing better than other people, but there's not a woman in here that reverences your husband the way that the church is supposed to reverence Christ. There's not a one of us in here that studies the Word as much as we would like to and we know that we should. There's not a one of us in here that operates in love towards others exactly the way that we should. There's not a person in here that's perfect. You commit sins that you aren't even aware of. You commit sin, you fail all of the time. The Bible definition of sin is missing the mark. We all are missing the mark. If you think that you have to have every sin confessed, give it up, hang it up, you're never going to get there. Somebody's saying, well, aren't you supposed to confess your sin? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. Again, if I had time, I could teach on it and show you that you've already received eternal inheritance, eternal redemption, Hebrews 9, 12, and 15. Your sin, all of your sin, past, present, and even the ones you haven't committed have already been forgiven. Your spirit is sanctified and pure. And then Ephesians 1, 13 says, the moment you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. When you sin... Sin doesn't penetrate that seal around your spirit. It doesn't get in and affect your spirit. And since John 4.24 says God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, God is looking at you in the spirit and God sees you as righteous, as holy, as pure as Jesus is because that's the way your born-again spirit is. And it's sealed. When you sin, that sin doesn't affect your right standing with God. You have to fellowship with God through the Spirit. But your body and your soul get defiled. Satan comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. John 10.10, Romans 6.16 says, uh, that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to sin, you give Satan an inroad into your physical body to bring poverty and discouragement and, 
and sickness and disease. You give him an inroad into your mind to bring depression and discouragement and things like this. And so, yes, sin does still have consequences, not on your spirit and not on your relationship with God because God's a spirit seeing you in the spirit and you're sanctified and perfected forever. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14. But... Your body gets contaminated and defiled and Satan will eat your lunch and pop the bag if you give him that kind of an inroad into your life. So what do you do when you do sin and you know that you've sinned? First of all, it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If you are walking in the knowledge and the revelation that God has given you, then the blood of Christ cleanses you from the sins that you don't even know about. But when you do know that you've committed a sin, 1 John 1, 9 says, confess it. The word confess means to say the same thing. Just acknowledge, God, you were right, I was wrong. You acknowledge it, and by doing that, that means that you've repented. You've turned around... And no longer are you giving Satan this inroad into your life. You've closed that door. And the righteousness and the holiness that already existed in your born-again spirit will now come out into your flesh and it will drive Satan out of your life. Even though you gave him a legal right to come into your life, you yielded. When you confess it and return, repent of it and turn from it, it gives this power that is located in your spirit, the ability to come out and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's not talking about your eternal redemption. And again, I could say much more about that, but if you just think it has to be this way. If 1 John 1, 9 says that you've got to confess every sin in order to have relationship with God, hang it up. You'll never do it. It's impossible. You don't even realize every time you sin. Some of you right now that I've rubbed your religious traditions the wrong way. You're sinning against me. You're thinking some evil thoughts towards me and whether you like it or not, I'm a brother. I'm going to have my mansion next door to you and you know what? If you hate me in your heart, the Bible says you're guilty of murder. You can't live this life where you've got to keep everything confessed. That puts the burden of salvation on you. You might as well save yourself. No, God died for all of your sins, past, present, and even future sins. You are forgiven. And you need to understand that there's nothing you've done that made God love you. There's nothing you can do that will make God not love you. Now, there's a lot of things you can do that will keep you from understanding. Sin will make you spiritually retarded. It will. It'll t- it, sin isn't smart. Sin is stupid. It's absolutely stupid. Go back and ask some of these people, some of these ministers that at one time had some of the largest ministries in the world. And they go out and they have sex with a prostitute. Jimmy Swaggart lost $8 million a month income preaching to more people on the television than any person in the history of the world. And he went out of a cheap hotel room and said he didn't have sex with the prostitute. He just watched her. I don't know that I believe that. But even if it was true, how stupid can you get a man who had this great influence and just gave it all up for a one-night stand, not even with somebody that they loved. 
Just to indulge their flesh. Sin isn't smart. Sin is emotional. It's stupid. It's absolutely stupid. And if you go out and live in sin, it's just like putting blinders on. You can't see. You can't perceive. You become stupid. You lose your perception. So yes, sin has consequences. But you know what? God's a spirit and He's looking at you in the spirit. And even when you've sinned and even when you've done these stupid things and given Satan inroad into your life, God's love for you has never fluctuated. He loves you just as much as He ever did because He never loved you because you were lovely. He just loved you because He is love. And somebody's thinking, oh man, you're just encouraging sin. Let me just say this straight out. I hate sin. I hate sin probably more than most of you. You know, I'm glad God called me to preach grace. Because there's people that will say, yeah, you just preach grace because it allows you to go live in sin. I've lived holier accidentally than most of you have ever lived on purpose before. My standard of holiness is much stricter than I would say the vast majority of people. I doubt if there's anybody in here who lives a more controlled, restricted life than I do. You cannot say that I am encouraging sin. I hate sin. And if you truly understand grace, it doesn't encourage you to go live in sin. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Verse 12 says, Teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly and righteously in this present world. The grace of God teaches you to live sober and righteous and a holy life. The grace of God hadn't caused me to go live in sin. You're barking up the wrong tree if you're telling me that this is saying that this I'm encouraging people to live in sin. I'm encouraging people to understand that God's love for them is unconditional. And if you ever get a revelation of, God, of that, you will serve God more accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. Love will be a greater motivation to serve God than fear ever was. Fear has torment. And many of you in your relationship are tormented because you think, I've got to do these things in order for God to love me. What kind of a relationship would you have if your mate came up and says, all right, unless you do this, 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 and this, and this, I'm keeping a checklist, and the first time you get out of line, I'm not going to fellowship with you. I won't talk to you. You aren't getting any money from me. I'm going to punish you. I'm liable to give you cancer if you don't repent and change. And if a, if a mate acted the way that religion has presented God, that he's not going to talk to you, he won't answer your prayers. He won't even listen. He's got his fingers in his ears until you repent. He's not going to listen. He's going to throw a fit, temper tantrum. He's liable to strike your child dead because he's displeased. You haven't read your daily Bible readings. That's what religion is saying. I guarantee you there's not a person in here that would live with a person like that. You wouldn't have a good relationship if it was all performance-based and fear-based and you had to do these things. And yet this is the picture that religion is painted of God and we wonder why people are struggling to maintain relationship. I'm telling you, God loves you because He's a good God. It's grace. And your faith doesn't move God. God isn't responding to you. Your faith is a response to Him. And if you would take this teaching that I've given this week and just use it to understand that God 
loves you by grace. God deals with you by grace. He's already forgiven all of your sins. You need to quit sinning so that you don't let Satan have an inroad into your life. But your holiness or lack thereof is not the basis of your relationship with God. If you would understand that and apply this to your life, I guarantee you it would move you to a brand new realm. It would move you to a new level. It would be so easy to believe God if He loved you enough to die for you while you were an absolute jerk. How much more does He love you now that you're just a minimum jerk? Amen. <laughs> how much more would He move in your life now? Man, it just reduces the Christian life to where it's just super simple. God loves me, and I study the Word not to get God to love me, but I study the Word because I want to read His love letter and discover how much He loves me. I pray not because I have to do it, punch a time clock, get my credit. I pray because I love God, and I enjoy hanging out with Him. Like Charlie and Jill sang tonight, I was listening to that song, and she said, my favorite thing to do. And I was sitting here thinking, I wonder how many people here tonight, it is really your favorite thing to do is to spend time with God. Now, in a church service, some people, oh, yes, brother. But if you're out on the street and somebody says, what is your number one thing? I bet you the vast majority of people in here would name something besides just hanging out with God. And I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm saying it because, you know what, the way that we've been taught about God, it's It's bad. It's not easy to hang with somebody who's killing babies and making them deformed and making them retarded and killing thousands of people in terrorist attacks and tornadoes and all of these acts of God and all of this stuff. You know what? It's not real fun to hang out with somebody like that. But when you understand how good God is, boy, the favorite thing to do is just to hang out with the Lord, to love Him. And if that's not your experience then I say this with love and compassion, but you're religious. You've been deceived. You are putting faith in your effort and thinking that God is responding to you instead of understanding grace and your faith just a way to appropriate the goodness of God. Amen or oh me. I tell you what, I know that this challenges a lot of what we believe, but it's all true. Well, I was going to apologize for going so long, but I just got a lot to say, and so anyway, I said it. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Let me ask again, because this is so important. I feel like that I should never talk about the goodness and the grace of God without giving people an opportunity to begin their relationship with God and receive this. You don't become born a Christian by being born into a Christian nation, by growing up in a Christian home. You don't become a Christian by going to church. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage and make you a car. You got to be born again to become a Christian. You have to come to the end of trusting in yourself and understand that God loves you not because you deserve it, but because God is love that He sent His Son 2,000 years ago and paid for all of your sins. The payment has already been made. Now will you accept it as a free gift? And the way you accept it, Romans 10, 9 says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. 
If you've never done that, you might be religious, you might be a good person, and you were thinking that, well, I'm good enough, God's going to accept me. Hopefully tonight you understand that it's not about your goodness, it's about what Jesus did. And you have to humble yourself and receive it as a total gift. If you've never done that, you need to make Jesus your Lord tonight. And then once you get born again, you also need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I've already used this logic once this week, but I'm telling you that the things that I'm saying here are not understandable by a person who's just operating out of your own intellect. You have to have the Holy Spirit give you revelation of what I'm talking about. You know, I quit a long time ago arguing with people. When I got started, I used to argue with people. I'd come up and I'd take scriptures and try and commit. I don't ever do that anymore because you know what? You can't argue a person into what I'm talking about. You have to catch it by revelation. And so I just have learned to just say it and I'm not going to argue with you about it. You have to have a revelation from the Holy Spirit. And that's the number one thing that happens when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you pray in tongues, the Bible says you're praying the hidden wisdom of God in a mystery. And then it says if you pray in tongues, pray that you interpret you can interpret that tongue. You can get revelation knowledge. That's how God showed me most of the things that I've talked about tonight was through taking the Word, studying it. I put the truth in me, but I couldn't grab hold of it. I'd pray in tongues and God would give me revelation and explain to me what it meant. I'm telling you, it's my personal conviction, it's my experience, and I can prove to you from Scripture that you just cannot understand the things of God without the quickening power of the Holy Spirit. If the Bible seems like a closed book to you, it's because the Holy Spirit wrote this, not to your brain, but to your heart. And you have to get the author of this book to reveal it to you. And I'm telling you, the number one thing that happened when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit wasn't my speaking in tongues, even though that was important. The number one thing was I began to understand. Revelation knowledge exploded on the inside of me. So you must be born again. You must make Jesus your personal Lord. And if you are going to succeed and go on in the things of God, you must have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and operate in the gifts that the Holy Spirit makes available to you. There are many of them, but one of them is speaking in tongues. If you don't have that baptism of the Holy Spirit, we would like to pray with you. If you've never been born again, we'd like to pray with you and see you born again. Is there anybody here that would just raise your hand and say, I need one or both of those and I'd like to receive prayer and receive that tonight.